Okay, so let's say the prayer. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us and grant us enlightenment to understand the, the writings of your holy saint, Saint Nectarios of Aegina. Amen. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Um, first, I want to say, Cornet uh, Polata, anyone whose name is Anna, because tomorrow is Saint Anna, and either Vespers have happened in your place, or they are happening, or they will happen soon. Uh, and so, uh, by anticipation, we're celebrating the feast tonight, but tomorrow, of course. Saint Anna has three feasts, in August, in September, and in December. Um, so there are many opportunities. For, a saint, for an Anna to celebrate her saint. Um, last time we were uh, in the first chapter of our book on the Feast of the Three Holy Hierarchs, the Three Hierarchs, that St. Ectarios um, uh, delivered uh, while he was still in Egypt, in Cairo, I believe. Uh, and um, the, well, the homily was... Um, in the audience, well, the audience was uh, a group of uh, schoolgirls. Uh, there had been a school that was established in Egypt um, by a rich uh, Greek merchant. It was a girls' boarding school, and they had invited the Patriarch of Alexandria to give a lecture, and the Patriarch sent Saint, sent Saint Nectarios. Um, and we had gone to the first section. Uh, actually, I think we had gone through all the way to section three of the homily itself, and it's a very rich homily. We're not going to read through it line by line like we did last time, uh, even though uh, I think uh, it should be read very closely and very carefully. But in the interest of finishing this homily uh, today uh, and staying reasonably close to the syllabus, uh, and if anyone has ever taken any of my classes, you know that I'm never on time with my syllabus. I'm always about a, a lecture behind. So we're a lecture behind. Um, uh, so we were uh, at section four. And I'm just going to talk about the themes and perhaps some quotes from, the, each, from those sections that are important for us to understand what St. Ectarios saying and what his teaching is and what his argument is in the particular section. Um, so at section five, we read section four. Uh, in section four, he gives his um, thesis for the entire essay, uh, and that is that the religious upbringing and intellectual formation of children uh, are, are united, right? Uh, that education and religion must be linked together. That's his thesis. Uh, and he's going to give an argument for why that's true. He's going to give oh, two arguments. Oh, there we go. Then, then, then he's going to um, provide us with some examples, namely the mothers of the three hierarchs, of how they um, exemplify the union between education um, and uh, exemplified in the upbringing of their children, that is, the union between education and religion. Uh, and then finally, at the end, he's going to show us what we should avoid, right? A one-sided formation for children. Um, so uh, in section five, 
His first argument is that man is a religious being by nature. Um, and he has to argue this because in the Enlightenment, uh, which was a philosophical movement about a hundred years before, but which has which which laid the foundations of the modern world, right? Modernity, um, that is our our condition, our social, cultural, politi political condition today is called modernity. Some say we are in late modernity. Um, uh, modernity was inaugurated, was began with the Enlightenment. And what was the Enlightenment? The Enlightenment was um, two things are at the core of the Enlightenment. One is um, the rejection of the religious component of man, that man is purely rational and not religious, um, and that the religious uh, component is irrational. It's the opposite of what man is. That's what the philosophers of the Enlightenment, who were active from the late 1600s to the early 1800s, but whose disciples, of course, were um, very active during the lifetime of St. Nectarios. Uh, and today, especially among the Orthodox, um, who uh, participated in the Enlightenment uh, later than the Western Europeans, uh, and thus uh, also um, imitated the Western Europeans. Um, the, the Eastern Europe and the Orthodox Europe is about a half a century behind Western Europe in many, in many developments. Um, and usually that's seen as a bad thing, although I might say that in some things it's a good, sometimes that's a good thing. Um, uh, but what that's done is it's created a, 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 uh, it's created a, a desire on the part of Orthodox Europeans <clears throat> and Orthodox Christians even in, in the Near East to imitate the West, thinking they've fallen behind. And so the first part of the philosophy of the Enlightenment is, that, is, is the denial of man's religious nature, that he's purely rational. Uh, the second part of the Enlightenment is the worship of the individual, individualism. And what is individualism? Individualism is when, when each person uh, is cut out, they took scissors and they cut each person out of their community uh, and the obligations and the traditions of the community, the obligations they have towards their community, and uh, the, uh, also the obligations that tradition places on individuals, right? Um, this is why we only talk about rights, but we don't talk about obligations today, because back in the Enlightenment, this is the way that they cut people out of their communities. They talked about rights. This discourse on rights is an individualist discourse, a uh, discourse on rights, merely on rights, is a discourse that dissolves society because everyone's kind of bouncing against each other, kind of competition with each other. Uh, and the cult of liberty is really the cult of man's liberation from, um, from religion, from community, from tradition. Anyway, that's the Enlightenment. St. Nectarios, of course, is writing in the late 1800s, and he is... Um, uh, he's trying to combat this. He's trying to provide a corrective. He's correcting the thought of his contemporaries. And with some of these arguments, you could, just, you could see him targeting the teachers. He's speaking to the girls, of course. He's also speaking to their teachers, who were 
uh, who prided themselves on their enlightenment, that, they, that they're the enlightened ones, uh, the, the, the aphotesis in Greek, so the epiphotismeni, those who have been enlightened. Um, and so the first part of his argument is that man is religious by nature. So um, he maps the course of almost every human being's development uh, and, and journey as they come to know the world around them, right? Um, and he says man is like a foreign pilgrim entering into a great theater, right? And that elicits wonder. And then as our reason starts to work, as we start to, as our mind develops, as we grow up, as we're educated, and our mind develops and we come to full adulthood, to our full humanity, that's what adulthood is, um, our reason unfolds. Um, and what we want, uh, while wondering at the world, we're also starting to discover the causes. And this, um, this journey that he's describing, of course, he's, he's paraphrasing what other philosophers have said, in particular, what Aristotle said. Aristotle taught that um, the whole world, of course, there's nothing that's not caused. And if you follow the relationship of cause and effect back, you could trace it all the way back to the primary cause, right? What is reason? Reason is the ability to follow cause and effect right, from the effect to the cause. That cause then turns into an effect of another cause. And we discover that that effect is the, eff is the effect of another cause. And we keep ascending and ascending. Um, and we go as far as we can go, he says, by tracing back these causes. And as we're tracing these, ca these causes and effect relationships, uh, we discover that um, whoever, whoever put this together, was wise and was good, right? That's something that comes out of the natural contemplation of, of uh, creation, right? Just contemplating creation unaided by revelation without the word of God, without the Bible, in other words, without the, the, the writings and teachings of the church and the saints, man using his power of observation and his rationality uh, comes to the conclusion that whoever put this together, of course, was omnipotent because this is a massive uh, place we live in. Um, but at the same time that this person was, uh, this cause is good and wise. Um, but we reach a limit. You reach the top. And um, we can't, our minds are not made to go by themselves beyond the boundary of creation, to go beyond creation. Um, the minds are made by themselves, were unaided to kind of trace back the, the relationships of cause and effect. But then we come to a point where um, we can't go anymore, right? Because we are finite and we can only know what is finite. We are temporal and we can only know what's enclosed within time. We are, we, we are spatial, we occupy some space, and we can only know what, what occupies space. But of course, God is none of the above. God doesn't, is not enclosed by time or space, and he's infinite. 
And so our mind stops at the boundary of the finite and it stops at the boundary of space and time. Um, and um, he says that the seeker then, the unfortunate seeker gets, is full of despondency and returns to his earthy birthplace and turns his contemplation to the things around him. This is what happened to the philosophers and the scientists of the scientific revolution uh, and the enlightenment. They went, they, they traced these cause and effect relationships to their limit. And then because, because they were doing this in an unaided fashion, they could go no further. And then they, they became despondent and returned back to the contemplation of, of, um, of creation, of the things that surround him. And thus they gave themselves, they, they, they put their shoulder into science and into engineering and started to create technologies, right? Uh, various types of technologies uh, leading eventually to the industrial revolution, the first industrial revolution, the second industrial revolution, the technological revolution, the digital revolution, so on and so forth. We have a plethora of inventions. To a certain extent, we could say that all those inventions um, are a byproduct of man's inability to transcend created time and space without God and man's kind of returning back down to earth, his mind returning back to the things around him, trying to figure out how they work and then trying to modify and adjust and developing techniques for, for manipulating those things. Um, he returns to his earthly place, uh, turns his attention to the contemplation of things surrounding him and resigns from the fruitless struggle to know God, understanding that nothing but the knowledge of God's existence is possible for the finite human mind, right? That's as much as we can say with our reason, that God exists. And because we're surrounded by the evidence of the existence of someone who is omnipotent, who is good, and who is wise, right? We're, we live in the artwork, someone's artwork. And once we realize it's someone's artwork, we know that there is someone out there that did this. But unless that person reveals himself to us, we can't go any further. But, St. Nectario says, there's a redeeming quality to this. He says, this sentiment is the first step toward faith. Right? So the knowledge of creation is a step towards faith, which bestows knowledge of the true God who man desires and seeks after. The fact that man wants to go and keep discovering the cause of each thing that he encounters means that he actually wants to go all the way to the top, all the way to the top. He wants, he has something that drives him to find the ultimate cause, right? The unmoved mover, as Aristotle calls him. Aristotle did this, this is exactly Aristotle's path. He used his reason to go to ascend up to the point where all he could say was, beyond this point, there is an unmoved mover. Meaning that there is the first, he also called it the first cause. The cause which doesn't have a cause. Right? Um, um, but that is the first step towards faith. So all of a sudden now we, reason leads us to faith. Correct reason leads us to faith. Well, what about the atheists, one might say? The atheists say that, well, uh, reason tells me that God doesn't exist. Um, that is actually an unreasonable statement. 
because reason tells us that what is true, statements that are claims that are true, um, explain something. They elucidate a relationship of cause and effect, right? Um, and usually true statements, um, usually true statements are the, uh, they uh, are, are very simple, right? They are the, they are simply formed, right? They are, uh, they're not complicated theories with multiple moving parts, right? Um, complicated theories with multiple moving parts are, uh, most people would consider implausible, right? Um, so the explanation that all this beauty around us and all this wisdom around us has no cause is implausible because literally it depends on billions and billions of moving parts, parts that move randomly. And somehow those things form themselves together. That, but that's an unreasonable statement. That's more complicated. That's a less plausible than saying that there's an intelligence that actually ordered things. And some scientists are actually coming full circle today and they're saying, well, there's a teleology in matter and that teleology pushes matter towards um, consciousness and ultimately reason. But then the question is, well, who placed that teleology there? Right? Who did that? Did it arise by itself? That's, that's a much more complicated explanation than saying, well, there is an intelligence, the ultimate intelligence that actually, an intelligent creator that actually placed these principles in matter. Yes, and matter um, is able to, in fact, uh, give rise, not by itself, but as at least um, the material cause, uh, give rise to a consciousness and reason. Um, so, but it's perfectly reasonable, and it's the most reasonable thing, according to St. Nectarios, for a person who's confronted with creation to believe, to come to the conclusion that there is a first cause, there is a God. Um, and in fact, uh, the Holy Fathers say that God is perceived by means of creation. Creation is a type of revelation, in other words. Creation is a type of revelation, but it's a limited, it's a very dim revelation. You can only get to the point of realizing that there's a cause. But you can't know anything more, and that cause is somehow good and somehow wise, but you can't know anything more about that cause. Um, so man has his spiritual path that takes him from the contemplation of, crea of creation to faith. Um, and the fact that man wants to know about the, the creator of the world, of the universe, that there's something driving him towards that, that demonstrates that he has a religious nature. Right? Our mind, the fact that our mind, in other words, two, two things, the fact that our mind is uh, created to know suggests that knowledge is not its final resting place, but it, we, we are created to know in order to have faith. Essentially, that's what St. Nicodius is saying here. Um, but also, the fact that man has a heart whose heart only finds its rest in God, 
only finds its rest in union with its creator. That shows also that we have um, just nature. Um, uh, a second argument that he uh, employs here is man as a social, since man is a social being, his nature has to be religious. So again, this is derived from Aristotle, from another book that Aristotle wrote, where he says that man is a political animal. Aristotle didn't mean that he's a political junkie. That's what some people say today, that constantly reading the news and constantly trying to find out what's going to happen in the next election. That's, that's, a, that's a deformation of, of our political nature. But what Aristotle meant is man is an animal, a, a living being, in other words, that's what, that's what he means, that is created to, created to live in a city, in a polis. Because he says, zon politikon, right? Politikon can be translated as political, but what it actually means is of a city, which means in a community. That's what he actually means. So uh, many philosophers and theologians ever since have paraphrased Aristotle as saying that, yes, a political animal, but actually a social animal, a social being, uh, as it's translated here. As a social being, he says, man must also be a religious being, since there cannot be a society without religion. And he goes to the Latin root of religion. Religio is a bond, right? It's what binds people together. It's the, it says religion is the connecting link which binds together all the various members of a society into a single, unified, stable body since religion contains the means of ennobling man's sentiments, raising them above his, des his desires and urges, it contains the meanings, sorry, it contains the means of influencing him salvifically, right? Religion is the link that binds people. An ancient Greek polis, or an ancient Roman polis, and thus by extension, every type of polis that has for been formed in Europe and the Mediterranean and the Middle East ever since, um, and other parts of the world as well, because this is a universal human phenomenon, um, it, it wasn't merely a settlement, a place where people just slept at night, right? A place where they, they, they just had their stuff. Um, but, but it was a community that was, of course, that shared the same space, but also shared a, the same language, the same customs, and was bound together by the same religious rituals. That's, of course, true of a pagan city, as it is true of a Christian city, right? Um, bound together by the same rituals, by coming together uh, in the same religious festivals, uh, worshiping in the pagan world the same gods, in the Christian world the one true God, right? Religion has always functioned in this way. There's, there's never been a society one might even say that even today's society has a religious component to it that functions in this way. The reverence that people have, for example, for the, the Constitution, or the reverence that people have for um, certain liberal principles. Liberalism is a, is a secularized form of Christianity. Many political philosophers argue that today. Um, but there are also other types of, uh, there are other, other 
sort of a- aspects of, of modern life that are kind of religious, kind of a distortion, perhaps, of religion, um, certainly of Christianity. Uh, today, everyone believes in everything they see on television, right? Well, that, that's something that binds people together, actually. Things are revealed to them. Light is revealed to those in darkness. That's what happens when you watch TV in the dark. But of course, I'm not talking literally. I'm just, uh, uh, by analogy, it's, it, it's a quasi-religious uh, phenomenon. So even our modern society, which is supposed to be free of religion, still comes back to what every other society in the world has ever done and has always been built on the bonds of religion. Uh, and if it's the true religion, this is a very good thing, right? In fact, St. Nectario says, um, it contains the means of influencing the citizenry salvifically, meaning that the true religion not only binds them together as a, as a cultural political whole, but also moves them towards their uh, salvation. Um, but also religion um, is a prerequisite for the state because it's, it's not the state that uh, keeps people, merely the state power, the state coercion that keeps people in line and keeps things in order. That is necessary sometimes. And it's not merely, he argues, the laws of the state. Those are necessary too. But what are the laws, he says? Um, how do faith and law work together? He says, it is not what is condemned by the laws that corrupts and destroys communities, but rather it is the law that it is what the law upholds, by, by which I think he means holds back. I think there's a translation problem here. It's not clear. Um, it's what the laws hold back, namely moral feebleness and corruption born of unbelief and irreligion. In other words, the passions, right? So the laws are just there to constrain our passions. Our passions arise either when we don't have faith, when we have too little faith, and of course the faith, the orthodox faith, is the antidote to the passions. So there you have um, the clear relationship between church and state, faith and law, right? The one works in the negative, the other works in the positive. But political communities, social, com- social groups, cannot exist without religion because it's religion that actually keeps them together uh, and it's the, the laws are actually pushing against what religion, pushing back what religion is actually fighting. Um, he says that man's social being is threatened without religion. Uh, religion is therefore an essential attribute of man, and the social man must act parallel to the religious man. So again, this Saint Nectarius, there's a there's a constant theme here, right? That the faith, um, faith, and society. Um, without faith, faith is the foundation of society. Um, the state and the church work together education and faith work together, right? There's the the union of things. He's working, he's going against the grain here. I want to point out that he's going against the grain of the enlightenment, which the enlightenment, remember what I said, was a big scissors that cut all these things apart and scattered them, fragmented them. And the saint of the church now is reuniting things. Remember, the work of the devil is fragmentation. And the work of God is unity. And here we see the man of God fighting against the fragmentation that the devil has created. 
through people that are subject to their passions. Philosophers who had not been purified of their passions, who were philosophizing, philosophizing and um, fighting against uh, the, the uh, Christianity. Um, so, an interesting point that he makes here is uh, in paragraph eight is that the assertion that man is irreligious stands in direct contradiction to God's goodness and his wisdom. It contradicts his goodness because man without religion would be left a pitiful creature, while it contradicts his wisdom because only religion allows man, uh, sorry, only religion shows man what his creator has appointed him, him, him to be, right? So if, if, the, the if the philosophers of the Enlightenment were right, uh, that, that man is irreligious, that religion is not part of his nature, um, then, well, let me, let me restate it. Claiming that religion is not part of man's nature contradicts what we, the evidence that we have for nature about God, that he's good. Right? So it's unreasonable. Um, because if man were irreligious, he would be completely dominated by his passions and would be pitiful. And what kind of a God would create such a being? How, what kind of a system, even if there's no God, what kind of a system would beget such a thing? Uh, uh, um, a rational creature, conscious, rational creature that is a slave to irrational, unconscious forces. Right? That's, that's a negative. That's, that's the view of um, the nihilists. Right? Similarly, um, we know from observing the world around us that the creator of the world and the universe is wise. Otherwise, it wouldn't all work together in such a harmonious way. But to say that man is not religious, it contradicts that. It contradicts that because um, God, out of his wisdom, showed us our true dignity. And what kind of a God or what kind of a system, certainly not a wise God or a wise system, would give rise to a rational conscious being that had no idea of his own dignity? Of what he should be. What's the point, in other words, of reason and consciousness if we don't know what, we're, what we should be? What's the point of our reason if we're just condemned to be subject to our passions? And so St. Nectarius, of course, um, uh, of course, disagrees with those statements. He believes that God is good and thus created us um, to be free of our passions, and God is wise. And he gave us the ability and created in us the ability um, to understand our dignity and also the capacity uh, to, uh, to receive him as a revelation. Um, in the next section, section 10, or two sections down, um, it says, concerning how man ought to be formed, that is, concerning the religious upbringing and religious formation of children. So having demonstrated that man is religious by nature, he then moves on to the upbringing of children. Um, and he starts from the very beginning. He says, um, from infancy, from before infancy. This is an important insight. He talks about the formation of mothers 
um, as a preparation for the formation of their children. Right? It makes complete sense. Of course, he's not limiting this to mothers. It just happens that he's speaking to uh, a group of uh, schoolgirls, right? To, to uh, the, his audience his, are, are these girls that are at this boarding school in Egypt, the, the daughters of very prominent um, uh, Greek merchant families. <clears throat> and so it's very appropriate for him to talk about motherhood. But of course, whatever he says here about mothers also applies to fathers. Um, and the uh, formation of mothers and fathers and their way of life before the conception of their child is not only demonstrated, I think, uh, the religious and the spiritual significance of, of that formation is not only um, demonstrated spiritually, but also, I think, and although Sinectarius doesn't uh, uh, mention this, today, science has moved forward, in particular, the science of epigenetics. And we know that the lifestyle of the mother and the father before conception actually has an influence on the child, actually affects their genes. Uh, you can look this up. I've read a little bit about it. Uh, but you can look you can look up epigenetics there are influences um the passions and this is an insight that the church has always had that the passions can affect children even before they're born um we knew this adam and eve right adam and eve sinned and now we're all we're all mortal we inherited that from them it wasn't in their original dna right but it got encoded in their dna and we received that DNA from them, and we're all mortal. And, um, you know, we have also diseases that are passed down from one generation to the next. Um, um, but it's not merely the biological, it's also the spiritual, right? The passions can leave their imprint on our genes as we pass them down to our children, Right? But St. Nectarios here is talking about the formation of mothers, their, their spiritual and intellectual formation. And again, he's going to stress the unity of the spiritual and the intellectual. The unity of religion and education, starting with the mothers. Um, he says it is necessary that mothers themselves be raised with great care, for they will serve as images of what their children will be uh, which will, uh, of which their children will be copies in continuation, spiritually and biologically. We know that. Um, he also says <clears throat> that mothers must receive that upbringing proper to them, beginning from their infancy, and that upbringing proper to them is an objective formation that has in view both the mind and the heart. Now here, we have, in our world today, in 2020, there is an entire war that's being fought right about, right at this point, about this. An entire, people in the secular press call it a cultural war, but we know better. This is a spiritual war that's going on. A war against our own nature. Of course, sin and passion Passions and the devil have always been warring against our nature because as human beings, we are created in the image and likeness of God. And the devil can't stand that. And so he tries to disfigure 
each one of us who is a living and breathing portrait of God. Um, uh, but in particular, in the last years, in the last decade really, a very intense war has erupted against, um, uh, against biological sex, against gender, right? The, the, the fragmentation of biological sex and gender against the entire family. Yes, ultimately, that's, well, it, it goes both ways. It goes against the family and it goes against the soul. Right, um, because um, there is the theory that um, that sex and gender are two different things. Um, that uh, there are people that could that, that have a, a different orientation, or there are there are born with a different orientation. There are people that are born with in in the wrong sex, so that their gender and their sex don't align. There are people who try to switch their biological sex to meet their gender. The idea that gender, in fact, is socially constructed, that it's not something that's given, but it's something that society constructs, and thus has the imprint of the so-called patriarchy, right? the, the big oppressive patriarchy that's, that's ruined women's lives from the beginning of time, according to them, um, that... Um, and there's a million other theories. You probably all have heard them um, in, in, in the last couple of years on television or unfortunately in the classroom as well. Um, that, oh, the other one is that the upbringing of children should be gender neutral. That is the worst thing that we can do for our children. That is like an original sin that we commit that has effects down the generations, right? Because mothers and fathers have to have the right upbringing from their own infancy, right? From our infancy, boys are being trained to be fathers. Girls are being trained to be mothers. And it's very natural, right? A girl doesn't have to be told that she has to play with dolls, right? Or uh, the girl doesn't have to be told that she likes to hang around the kitchen with her mom when her mom is doing uh, womanly things, cook, you know, providing for the family, cooking. Or the boy wants to be with his father when he's doing manly things, right? Building things, destroying things if they need to be destroyed, right? Um, using physical strength, especially outside of the house to build and improve the house. Oh yes, and attacking bad people, right? A attacking, uh, defending the family from enemies, right? The little boys do this automatically. Little girls do these things automatically. Little girls automatically imitate their mothers. Little boys, in other words, it's their nature. They don't have to be taught this. This isn't necessarily uh, something that you have to tell them. They know it right away. Um, and we have, to, we have to protect our children from the theories that are out there. Uh, we have to protect them from um, the, the various gender-bending theories, right? And, and they should dress like, girls should dress like girls, boys should dress like boys. Girls should do girl things, boys should do boy things, right? 
that doesn't mean that boys are better than girls or girls are better than boys or anything like that. That's all juvenile thinking. Um, it's just that they have separate, they will have separate roles when they grow up. Um, so the mothers from their infancy are prepared to be mothers. Um, in their education, though, boys and girls, of course, are human beings, and so they have a common uh, intellectual and spiritual nature. Um, and so uh, St. Nectarius insists that their formation have both the mind and the heart in view. Okay, here, now St. Nectarius, of course, is um, the mean between two extremes. On the one extreme, let's say, is the European Enlightenment. It says that, well, it's only only the mind it's only intellectual right um and and uh, on the other extreme is the other uh, argument that says well only boys should be trained in intellectual pursuits only men should be trained intellectually uh, and saint nectarios disagrees with that he disagrees with it uh not because he wants men and women to be interchangeable that's what we think. That's what our society thinks. That a woman can do a man's job and a man could do, I don't know. I don't think a man could do a woman's job, um, it, right? There are some things man can't do. Um, but the idea is today that men and women are interchangeable. They're not interchangeable. They have distinct roles. Uh, but Senectarios is taking a middle, middle ground approach and he's saying, um, Boys and girls should have the same education because that education prepares them for their different roles. Right? That education prepares them for the, the, the mother's education is a preparation of the child, for the children's formation. The education that the mother gets, in fact, social scientists um, uh, have, have some, uh, to an extent, to an, to an extent they've demonstrated this. Uh, that often in terms of IQs, um, and IQ fluctuates, uh, but in terms of IQs, the children are the mean between the two parents, right? Um, and St. Nectarios has the same intuition that, of course, you want smart children, but you want your children also to be faithful at the same time. Uh, and so the mothers must be smart and faithful, as well as the fathers. Um, but in, in general, he says, these two principles, the mind and the heart, these two are the two axes around which man's spiritual and moral formation revolves. So now we get to an anthropological view of man, that man is um, soul and body, but that his soul has parts too, just like the body has parts. Uh, the soul has different uh, faculties, we say. Um, and the mind, of course, is the faculty that reasons. But the heart, some fathers call it the heart, because that's what it's called in the Old Testament, in the Bible. Others, other fathers call it um, the, the spirit, right? Um, but it's the higher part of the soul. It's the part of the soul that, ha that, that unites with God, right? In the same way that our body has parts like eyes our five senses that helps us interact with our physical environment so too the soul has faculties 
that helps it understand its physical environment, but also unite what is beyond the unite with what is beyond the physical environment. So the heart wants to find its rest in God. Right? So we have the mind which wants to understand what's around us, and the heart which wants to find its rest in God. And education in the formation of mothers has to the education of mothers has to look at both of these. He says the heart belongs to the metaphysical world, what is beyond the phys- physical things, what is beyond what the, the, the visual, visual, sorry, visible reality, and the mind uh, is for the physical world. Each therefore needs to be taught its own proper truth. The truths of the mind are education and science, while the proper truths of the heart are supernatural truths and religion. And we must bestow upon our young women, he says, both education and religion so that they can bestow these on their own children. Education and religion are the two radiant lighthouses which lead seafaring men across life's storm-tossed sea and keep him safe, seafaring man, and keep him safe from every shipwreck and every dangerous trial. They are the two eyes of the soul. And he goes on. Um, Only mothers formed in this manner can produce good children, good citizens, and courageous men. Right? Good children, good citizens, and courageous men. The entirety of civilization rests on the shoulders of mothers. Right? Uh, This militates against what's said today. First of all, People today don't believe that anyone is responsible for anything that comes after them. Not only are they not responsible for what comes after them, they have no reason to care about what comes after them for their posterity, right? Um, They have no obligation. That's the core of individualism. No obligation to what comes after us, to who, to the people that come after us. That's why we wreck the environment, right? Uh, That's why people don't have children because they don't feel that they have some kind of obligation to propagate uh, the human race and, and have descendants and, and pass down the gift of life um, to, to the people that come after them, because we receive life for free, right? What does it say? You receive what you receive for free, you give for free, right? Although, yes, parenting is not exactly free, um, it is. It involves sacrifices and obligations, and that's exactly what modern man dislikes: to sacrifice, to be forced to sacrifice, and to have obligations. You want to be free. Why don't we want to enjoy everything without paying the bill? Um, and and to say that women, we in particular, have uh, the a big responsibility vis-a-vis civilization because they want to be mothers or because they, they should be mothers, right? This is anathema. This is something that can't be said. This is something that is, is heresy. Um, but in fact, um, this is the way it's always been. And this is the way that this, this is the, what corresponds to our nature. Everything that we do, everything that the church teaches, Everything that St. Nectarius is teaching here. Notice the way St. Nectarius is progressing. He's progressing through the faculties of the human soul. 
he's progressing, he's, he's, he's looking at himself, at his own soul. He's coming to know himself. On the basis of knowing himself, he's saying these things, right? And he's of motherhood. Everything in our soul and in our body, as men and as women, moves in that direction. That's our nature. That's why it's always been that way. That's why it needs to continue to be that way. And this is why women have a particular role in the transfer, in, in the continuation of Christian civilization, because they not only are called to bear children, but they're called to form them. It's not just about the physical, but it's also about the, uh, the spiritual. Good citizens and courageous men, without those and good children, with, but without courageous men, there can be no civilization. But behind every courageous man is a courageous wife and a courageous mother and father, of course. Um, <clears throat> um, and we're, we're running short on time here, so I'm going to move forward uh, to talk about the examples. So he, he talks about the examples of St. Emilia, St. Nona, uh, and St. Anthusa, the mothers of St. Uh, Basil, of St. Gregory, of St. John Chrysostom. Um, he says something that could confuse us. Um, so they were religious, they raised their children in a religious manner, um, and um, they were not afraid, where does it say that? They were not afraid to send their children um, to be educated by pagans. Um, that accounted these teachers' wrong beliefs as nothing because they had such confidence in themselves that is in their own faith. So that could be a little confusing. Is St. Nectarius saying that we should send our children to pagans to be taught? He's not saying that. First of all, the civilization that these teachers, these pagan teachers that he's talking about, lived in is almost, even the pagan version of that civilization is almost the complete antithesis of modern life modernization, right? Um, the, the teacher of uh, St. John Chrysostom is one of his teachers, his teacher in rhetoric, uh, is Libanios, who is from Antioch. His, his writings exist, one can go read them. And you can see that he's a very wise man, that, that the society that, that, that he grew up in, that he was born into, that he grew up in, was a society that was relatively normal. What was wrong in his society was that they worshiped the wrong gods but in their political institutions, uh, in their education, and what the, they thought education was about, and what it was for, um, in their family life, it was a relatively normal society, right? And so in that civilization that had very high ideals for human beings, Greco-Roman civilization, um, in, in that society where there are still normal relationships, Aristotle said, that man is a political animal. He's, his natural habitat, in other words, is the polis, a well-ordered polis, a polis that leads men towards virtue, that incites them to virtue. All that is perfectly natural and consonant with our nature. In that context, sending them to teachers who were not Christians, um, but of course, having prepared the children beforehand with a firm faith, in their God, and a respect for science, um, according to St. Nectarios, these women had nothing to worry about. Right? In our own day, though, 
the same doesn't hold true. In our own day, uh, the, uh, the society that we live in does not have uh, uh, relationships that are normal or natural. We're all alienated from each other. We say we live in a state or in a commonwealth or, or whatever, a republic, or, or, but in fact, we live in an atomized situation. We don't live in a polis. Most neighbors don't care about each other. Most neighbors in our society in North America don't even know each other, although there are exceptions. Um, the relationships between the generations, the relationship between the generations has been broken. Relationships between parents and children, in other words, the relationships between parents, right? In St. John Chrysostom's era, among the pagans, divorce was relatively rare. It became even more rare with the Christians. It was possible to get a divorce in the Roman Empire, and people did, but not at the rate that, we, that there are divorces today, right? Um, and so... In, in that society, people understood that gender corresponds to bi biological sex, that gender roles, that men and women are not interchangeable. Um, in, those, in, in such a society, you could, you could send your children to, to pagan priests as long as, not priests, uh, teachers. Um, but in our society, it may not be possible everywhere to do that anymore, um, to send children to uh, people that are there only to understand themselves to be there only to um, to remove the biases and the prejudice, prejudices uh, uh, of the parents, right? Many you know, people have gone, gone through the taking courses in the College of Education in my university, and that's what they're told, right? That the, pur the purpose of the teacher is not to teach, is not to transmit knowledge as much as it is to combat the pre prejudices and the biases of, that the parents instill in children, right? That's a system of social engineering, not a system of education, right? So St. Nectarios was describing a completely different world. But the point still stands, though, um, that A, the mothers have a responsibility to instill in their children a faith, an unshakable faith. That's his main point. And also that pious education and muse-reared muse -reared religion must coexist, right? He, he uses the adjectives and the nouns, interchanging them to make his point, right? Pious education, education and religion together, not merely religious education, but religion with science must coexist. Um, we might paraphrase this uh, uh, and say, uh, religious science and scientific religion. Don't take that too far. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, <laughs> the Scientology. That's not what I'm talking about, right? But this is what St. Ignatius is talking about. He's talking about religion paired with education. Um, uh, in the last two pages, uh, especially uh, starting at 15, he, he says that a one-sided upbringing is reprehensible. Reprehensible one-sided upbringing leads to the following two undesirable outcomes, either to superstition or to contempt for divine things. Such an end is the natural outcome and immediate result of this kind of upbringing. So here, we could see him, of course, he's speaking in general, 
but but we could also say that he has examples that um, this is based on the example of the East and the West, right? He he grew up in the suburbs of Constantinople during the Ottoman Empire, uh, and he's a bishop in Egypt, um, which is technically part of the Ottoman Empire still, but is by this time had been occupied by the British. Uh, kind of a complicated political setup, but nonetheless, nonetheless a Muslim-majority society. He's also interacting in Egypt with British officials, people coming from Europe, European travelers and scientists, and uh, uh, so on and so forth, and Greeks and other Orthodox Christians that, um, that, that had uh, interest in the Enlightenment. Um, and he's seeing in those two groups, the Easterners and the Westerners, one-sidedness. Right? The Easterners, the Muslims, um, were, had a one-sided upbringing uh, that led to superstition and thus fanaticism. Right? Uh, Muslims are very superstitious. Um, and that superstition uh, lends itself to fanaticism. Right? And St. Ecclesiastes attributes that to their upbringing. In the Westerners, he sees the opposite. It's a one. It's another type of one-sided uh, upbringing, right? It's the one that uh, is non-religious, the irreligious, and it has contempt for divine things, right? And we know the outcomes of these two types of these two paradigms, right? With uh, in, within a couple of years of this sermon, the Ottomans will begin multiple waves of genocides against Christians, starting with the Armenians in the 1890s, uh, and then climaxing during World War I in the 1920s, again with the Armenians, and then also with the, uh, the, the Orthodox Greeks in Asia Minor. Millions of people put to the sword. Um, and around the same time, we see the fruit of the next, of the other paradigm, the irreligious paradigm, starting in 1914 with World War I, and then, of course, with the Russian Revolution and the massacres of the Russian Revolution, and, the, and, and the, yes, the genocides that happened in the Russian Revolution against Orthodox Christians, millions in the 1920s and the 1930s alone, um, and then the, 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 the bloodshed and the slaughter ratcheting up in the 1940s, uh, and, and during World War II and in the late 1940s and throughout the, all the way to 1989, 1990 with the uh, fall of communism, 91, um, we have bloody regimes that are established by uh, people that have a one-sided upbringing, a lopsided upbringing, right? Um, and so both of these outcomes lead to even worse educational outcomes, lead to uh, violence and bloodshed, mayhem and mass murder. Um, so that's um, St. Nectarius's uh, first homily in this book on the Feast of the Three Hierarchs. I think we have some time for questions. Maybe I'll stop. People can ask questions.
No questions? Someone say something. <laughs> Why don't I ask a question then? Um, why don't I ask the question um, about the contrast between the world that St. Nectarios, and I know I've talked about this, but you guys can either develop this, this, uh, this a little bit more or, or perhaps go in a different direction. Contrasting what St. Nectarios is describing with our own experience or comparing it, perhaps. Some things you may have seen in your own upbringing. Some things you wish you had in your own upbringing. Some things that you had uh, in, um, that you see around you. I have a question. Did, Maria, did you say I have a question? Did you write that? Who, whose question is, I don't see a hand. In the chat. Oh, okay. Okay. How do mothers get around working full time? That's a big question. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know how it's done. My wife works full time. I don't know how she does it. Um, it's really a, a superhuman effort um, because it, you know, Especially after, and, and, and mothers here that are part of this group can, can probably talk about this more than I can. But I, I, I saw it, I see it as a father. Mothers, after they have, women after they have children, um, they have they're an instinct, right? Because all, we also have body, right? We're also, we share some attributes with animals as well. Animals have instincts. We have instincts too, but it's not, mere, we don't merely have instincts. We also have knowledge right, and intuition, so on and so forth. Um, those are categories of the mind uh, in, our, in, in our particular human type of consciousness. Um, but women's entire being is kind of reordered uh, and, and, um, and kind of corresponds or points to the child. It's connected to the child. Um, and that has uh, a um, consequence, right? When, when the uh, woman leaves the home to work, right? Um, the funny thing about our society is that we expect men to be men and women to be men and women, right? We expect um, uh, women to um, do both things. Uh, and 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 uh, it's not a surprise that uh, you know the women's health is declining because of that. There's a tremendous amount of stress uh, that that generates to be both a mother and a professional. That's why in the past, um, professional women often didn't have families. But professional women were often celibate. Right? So they could devote themselves to their vocation, which they felt to be science or education or medicine or whatever. Um, today, of course, modern life has allowed us to have a little bit more flexibility there. But don't imagine that it's an easy thing. 
because it, it's something that militates against our nature. It militates against man's nature and it militates against woman's nature. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, that's my answer to that question. I don't know if anyone has anything to add to that or, or wants to follow up with another question. Um, another question in the chat, do you think because of the superstitions that the Muslims hold that there could be a reason why they are so ready and desirable to kill Christians? Um, well, you know, the Muslim, in the Muslim worldview, the traditional Muslim worldview is that, um, uh, is that the world is divided into two zones, the one part that is uh, subordinate and subject to God that's what Islam means, subjection to God. And the other part that is not and has to be warded against. So I think the two phrases are the house of Islam, of submission, and the house of war. Right? Uh, and so, of course, their conception of God is a very, very uh, simplistic in its, in its simplicity, in its oversimplification, in other words, of God. It's a distortion of God. That God is radically one. Right? Only one and only his will, and everything has to be, kind of, everything else has to be annihilated and brought under his subjection. Um, and um, that type of conception of God is a superstitious conception. Uh, in fact, the Greek word for superstition is visidemonia, which means excessive fear of the demons. But what the ancient Greeks actually meant was excessive fear of the gods. Um, excessive fear, uh, by which they meant not the fear of God that we talk about, which is really the fear of losing the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's what we fear. Um, that, that God will abandon us. We also fear God's judgment. Right? Um, but we don't fear God and in the sense that he is some type of terrible being um, that, that needs to be appeased uh, by any means, right? So the, uh, the, there was the Feast of St. Elias uh, last weekend, and uh, St. Elias fought against the cult of Baal, um, the establishment of the cult of Baal in the kingdom of Israel. And the, these Canaanite gods often required human sacrifices, that they needed, they needed to be appeased with human sacrifices. That's superstition. Uh, that, that, that God needs to be appeased uh, by killing people. Uh, um, that we should be so afraid of God, right? That's, that's a superstitious um, belief. There's also other types of superstitions um, that are not uh, literally connected to this excessive fear, but have nothing to do with faith. In fact, they are uh, often just remnants of paganism, remnants of non-Christian, or elements of, of non-Christian religions that are kind of absorbed by uh, Christians, um, right, or, or even Muslims. Muslims are very superstitious. They, they treat, uh, they even go to Orthodox churches 
because they, they think it gives them good luck, right? And they, they venerate the icons of saints because they think it gives them good luck. That's a type of superstition. Um, yeah. Other questions? Did St. Nectarius encourage the girls to live their lives for Christ versus marriage? Um, St. Nectarius, of course, founded a monastery in Aegina many uh, a couple decades later. Um, and at a time when uh, many monasteries had been closed, right? In the 1830s and the 1840s, the Greek state was busy closing monasteries as if it had nothing else to do. Um, and uh, there was a secularization, an attempt to secularize religious life, an attempt to secularize religious education. I would even argue that um, the establishment of the theology schools, even the ones that St. Nectarios attended, uh, began a process of secularization. Now, St. Nectarios, thank, thank God, escaped unscathed from those, only benefited from those institutions, because it is possible to benefit from those institutions. But eventually what happened is those, those institutions were dominated by professors of theology who were trained in Protestant universities or Catholic universities. And the end result, we know, was ecumenism by the 1920s. Um, but back to the monastery. So he, he founded a monastery at a time when it was not fashionable to find found monasteries. Um, eventually, there was a revival of monasticism in the rest of Greece, uh, especially when Mount Athos became part of Greece in 1912. Um, the influence of, Ath of Athenite monasticism began to increase. It's not a coincidence that just 10 years later, or 12 years later, uh, in 1924, it was Athenites who actually taught people that the calendar change was bad, right? So that's evidence of what I just claimed, that what I just said, that the incorporation of Mount Athos into, into Greece actually led to a revival of both piety and monasticism. So Synecdotius was kind of at the first, uh, um, kind of at the beginning of that, establishing his monastery. On the other hand, Synecdotius um, understood that it was not possible for everyone to have the same calling. God calls people to different things. Um, monasticism is not for everyone and marriage is not for everyone. Why? because God doesn't call everyone to monasticism and God doesn't call everyone to marriage. God has a particular will for each human being. And that will is not the, uh, a verdict, right? Uh, or some kind of sentence that he imposes on us, but it corresponds to our will. He knows what's best for us and he provides for us. And for some monasticism is the correct way. For others, marriage is the correct way. The middle ground um, is very dangerous, no marriage. Um, because what monasticism and marriage have in common is, is that a, they have two, at least two things in common. The, the, the sacrifice of the will, right? We subordinate our will to someone else. In the case of marriage, the husband subordinates his will to the needs of his family. And the wife subordinates his will to her, her, sorry, subordinates her will to her husband's will. Right? They subordinate their wills to each other in different ways, but it's the same action. 
same type of action. In monasticism, of course, the monk subordinates his will uh, to his elder. And in this way, our wills are healed, right? Because sin is not just an action that we do. It's, it's the result of a disease. And the disease infects all the parts of our soul. And each, each part of our soul has to be healed. So our will has to be healed somehow. And it only is healed through obedience. Because it's only through obedience that we learn love. There is no such thing as love without obedience. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. Um, so that's what marriage and um, monasticism have in common. Um, and of course, they, the other thing that they have in common is they, they, they're bridal. They, they control our passions, right? Uh, especially the, the, the passion of the flesh and lust, right? They're subordinate. Um, they, 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 uh, the, in marriage, of course, marriage is monogamous, right? And then monasticism, of course, is the ultimate training. Uh, it's, the, um, it's the training for the Ironman <laughs> marathon. Uh, um, so there are some texts that um, were posted. What is that, Maria? Can you read that? Can you? You can live a life in Christ even if you are married. Yes. Okay, it's a quote. It's not a question. You want to talk about it? Um, it's just a quote I quote from St. John uh, Chrysostomus where he talks about, um, you know, when you are married, when there's harmony within the household. We spoke a lot about harmony. I think it was the last book study session that we did um, or two study sessions ago where harmony, in order to live a life in harmony, you have to live a life in Christ. So when that exists in the household, then you're able to keep that order, as St. John Chrysostomo says, um, within, the, within the family, your na- it starts affecting your neighborhood, your friends, and so forth. Um, and we're able to produce a more fruitful society in that manner. Right. Order is important. The order of the household is important. Hierarchy is important. And hierarchy is not a mechanism of domination. But it, it, it's, it's a ladder of love, right? Uh, and it teaches obedience. It requires obedience, and thus it, it begets more love. Um, you know, the parents can't be their children, the, the friends of their child. They have to be parents, right? And, and the child has to have obedience um, because without it, there's no love, right? The father has to be the head of the household, Right, but not because he wants to dominate his wife and his children, because that's what he didn't choose. That God gave it to him, and he has to respect that. The same thing with the wife; she didn't choose it. God gave her that role. That's divinely ordained. Um, and when we when we pick up the yoke that God gives us, we're truly free. We're truly free, um, because every other everything else, doing our own thing leads to slavery, always. Slavery to something, usually to the passions. But it could be worse. Um, another question. Uh, St. Nictadius asked the Lord to give him cancer so he could help those battling the disease. Was cancer the same type of cancer as we know today? I assume it was. Um, but of course, cancer is more prevalent today in society because of our way of life. 
and perhaps because of, uh, not merely because of our choices, but perhaps also because of the various substances that we are um, exposed to on a daily basis uh, that have bad effect and that we're, we weren't created to be constantly in contact with. We weren't created to hold uranium, right? That's why God buried it in the, in the earth, really deep in the earth. Um, and so uh, that, that's an extreme example, of course. But there are many other chemicals that we use on a daily, daily basis that lead to cancer, widespread, um, these chemicals, and thus cancer is much more prevalent. If I can uh, attempt to answer that question, Anita, yeah. um, I may not be correct, but um, I don't know the reason why St. Macdadius would ask for that, but I can only assume that it would be um, asking for some type of selfific punishment, so to say, because through those types of punishments, we begin to be closer to God. And so if he is closer to God than what he was, he would be able to help other people um, more than he already did before. You know, what, you know what? You know what the fathers say. The fathers say this: that one glory to God when you're in pain is greater than one thousand Lord have mercies spiritually. Right? One glory to God being grateful when you're sick is the hardest thing that you could ask anyone to do. It's extremely difficult, right? Being grateful. And yet gratitude, gratitude when we're sick leads us to salvation. So why, why does God allow this? Why does God allow this, the prevalence of cancer to be so, you know, you know the, for cancer to be so widespread in our society? We only, we, I, we cannot speak about, I can't speak about specific cases, right? But in general, we know that God always takes an evil and turns it into a good, right? He defeated death by death. He defeated death through his own death. Death was a bad thing, and then he, but he used it against itself, right? And defeated sin and freed us from death and sin. Um, so, um, and, and similarly with cancer and all illness, uh, that illness is something that, one, wakes us up to our own mortality, so we know ourselves better. Uh, two, um, shows us that someone else is in control. Uh, three, actually silences the passions, right? Um, and, and four, puts us in a spiritual state where we can receive a tremendous amount of grace. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's, this is going to sound strange because disease is terrible, but to the saints, it was a gift, right? And St. Nectarios throughout his life suffered in various, he was persecuted. Um, and yet in his persecution, during his persecution, he remained grateful. Gratitude is a big deal. Gratitude is, is, a, is a huge deal. And I'll also add that um, by being able to understand who you are, recognizing yourself through these um, troubles allows you to be closer to God. And that's something that I thought a lot more about just recently because um, 
as we're reading St. Nicodemus, there's another book that he wrote specifically about learning who you are. And he starts off his homilies in that book by stating that once you know who you are, then you can know who God is and you will be closer to him. Right. Oh yeah. So it's, um, if there aren't any more questions, we can continue this discussion next week with the next chapter um, in the book, which is on more about motherhood. Motherhood and the raising of children. He's going to elaborate more on some points that he made uh, in this early, uh, in this first sermon. Um, so thank you everyone for um, for coming, uh, logging in, and um, I hope everyone has a a good night and a good rest of the week. Of course, this weekend is a mini Holy Week. Saint Anna today, or rather Friday tomorrow. Saint Paraskevi, Saint Padelemon. Saint Irene on Monday. Uh, a lot of saints here that are uh, interceding for us right now, for us always. What oh, yeah. Okay.